Hey, good morning, everybody. Yeah, great to be here this morning. Thankful to be here with delivering God's word for you this morning. Uh, I'm excited to walk us through our passage today. If you've got a copy of God's word, would you mind uh, grabbing it and turning with me to Matthew chapter 28? Uh, today we get to wrap up our series looking at the beauty, the glory, the power of the church, and not only looking at this amazing church that Jesus Christ has made, but also its, it's awesomeness, but also my place in it. So we're finding out not only how awesome this church is, but also where exactly do I fit in and what exactly is my role in the church. So today we get to wrap up uh, this series and we get to look at one of the greatest passages in Scripture. In fact, it's so great that people have called it the Great Commission. How about that? Uh, Verses that actually have a nickname uh, we're going to look at today. These are three verses, and what we're going to, our task today is to look at and see just what makes the Great Commission so great. Not only that we would understand it, but that we would embrace it, and we would love it. And then God willing, also join in the Great Commission. That this church, Bannockburn Church, would be known as a church that is so Great Commission-minded. Now, before we begin, uh, we've got a problem. And it has to do with Niagara Falls. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls before? Uh, If you've never been, it's absolutely astonishing. A couple facts about Niagara Falls, okay? 3,000 tons of water fall over Niagara Falls every second. That's like a million bathtubs every minute. Imagine what that would do to your lawn right now. These huge, this amount of water also, I've seen it with my eyes, drives huge electric turbines that feeds electricity to massive cities. Cities like Toronto in the north and New York City gets its electricity from Niagara Falls. It's also a perfect place to visit any time of the year. It's glorious in the summer when it's super hot. You can walk along the edge with the railings and the mist just comes up over the top of you and cools you constantly. It's a fun place to go in the summertime. But it's also a pretty cool place to go in the wintertime when the half of the falls starts to ice over and then the hotels across the street from them shoot laser lights into it and light up the falls and do all kinds of presentations on it. It's really, really cool. I used to live 45 minutes away from Niagara Falls just around the coastline of Lake Ontario. I rode in the boat that you can see in the picture there. I also rode in a jet boat that took you up and then did all kinds of crazy moves around the falls. Uh, I've also been to the water park that's nearby. Uh, I've also visited the bird sanctuary that's been there. I've walked up and down Clifton Hill. I've seen the Frankenstein Museum. I've seen the Ripley Museum. I've had it all. I've been there. I've done that. And if you've never been... I guarantee you that one of the things on your bucket list is, man, yeah, one day that'd be kind of nice to go to Niagara Falls. Do you know how I know this? Because anybody who ever visited me would want to go to Niagara Falls. And I mean anybody. They come into town, hey, so glad to see you, so, so thankful you're here. What do you want to do while you're here? We obviously want to visit and socialize. Oh, you know what? There's one thing that I'd really like to do. Oh, no. Here it comes. I'd like to go see Niagara Falls. Right, of course you would. You'd like to go see Congress Bridge and the Bats. Yeah, I mean, or whatever it is, right? You get what I'm saying? Uh, And so I would pack up the car, 45-minute drive. I'd drive them there, show them the falls. Here it is. There's the water. It's still going. 
I've seen Niagara Falls dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I'm literally not excited by Niagara Falls anymore. I tried to get a picture with me in front of the falls to show you the falls, but I realized that I never take a picture of me at the falls because I just don't care about the falls anymore. What's happening here? Well, I'll tell you what's happening. Familiarity has bred a little bit of, But listen, that doesn't make Niagara Falls any less glorious or any less awesome. You know where I'm going, right? You know the problem is, is that sometimes we get bored with greatness. And that's okay, it's sad when it comes to Niagara Falls, but it's not okay with God's word. Listen, we can fall into a similar trap with God and his word. We can start reading familiar passages and we can start going, oh yeah, that one again. This can happen for Christians when we talk about the Great Commission. I mean, it's everywhere in churches, everywhere, right? The Great Commission is the foundation for much of what we do, even here at Bannockburn. We could become so familiar with the Great Commission that we may be overlooking some incredibly important, great things that God wants us to see. And so that's why today, before I read the, or after I read the passage, I want to pray that God gives us fresh perspective. A fresh sight to see the Great Commission, maybe in a way that we've never seen it before. That we would understand it, that we would embrace it, that we would love it, that we would join it. Step up maybe in new ways. Because there's so much in the Great Commission that's great, that needs to be savored, needs to be understood and embraced and joined. Okay, so what I want to do is I'm going to read our passage for us and then I'm going to pray. We're going to ask God to help us. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 says this. And Jesus came... And said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray. So Father, we we do give you this moment. We give you this time of teaching, we ask, Lord, that you would move in a supernatural way in this room. Father, for those who have been a part of Bannockburn for years, for our children who are joining us today, for our guests who are joining us today, Lord, for all of us here in this room, I pray, including self, that God, even as I teach, my heart be opened again, refreshed again, renewed again, that sight be given to all of us, maybe a truth that we've never seen before, considered again, Maybe the weight, the importance, never seen before or considered again. God, would you move, I pray, in a unique way, a special way in this room right now. You see the hearts that are here, and God, I pray that you be convincing by your spirit the hearts to be embracing the Great Commission and joining in it more than possibly they've ever done. So Lord, would your spirit move? Would your son be glorified? Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so why does everybody call this passage the Great Commission? I'm going to give you four reasons, four reasons why the Great Commission is just so great. Here's the first one, it's this. There's a great context to the Great Commission. Uh, Let's look at the first part of verse 18. It says, you notice this, and Jesus came and said to them. And Jesus came and said to them. Now, as students of the Bible, we realize that we've just walked in into a middle of a sentence because it started with and, and everybody knows you don't start a sentence with the word and. There's something that's come before this. And so as students of God's word, we start to dive in and we start to ask questions and we start to see, wait a second, the the context here is really important. And when we understand the context, it really pops the verses in new ways. 
we could ask the first question, well, who's the them that Jesus is coming to? And we could zip our eyes up to verse 16 and we could see, oh, you know what? These are the 11 disciples that Jesus is coming to. It tells us that in verse 16. And maybe the second question we might ask is, okay, he came to us, but where did he come from? If Jesus is coming to us, he must have come from something. And what is that something he's just come from? Well, the answer to that is, according to Matthew's gospel, he's just come from being raised from the dead. This passage occurs in Matthew's gospel after he died and after Jesus rose again. In other words, the context is a miracle. Just days before, these same 11 men had witnessed Jesus Christ crucified, die on a cross. These men had seen their leader, their greatest hope, dead. These men had witnessed him bound and laid in a tomb and a stone rolled in front of it. These men had possibly carried the grief for days, the guilt of abandoning him, the shame, the feelings of pain, of hopelessness, of loss. And now, and now, here he is, standing in front of them. Stone gone, grave clothes gone, Jesus alive. And why is that? Well, because death could not hold Jesus Christ. The grave had no claim on him. Sin could not bind him. Jesus had entered into death, sacrificed himself for the sins of the world so that those who by faith would trust in him would have eternal life. So here's the question. If death could not stop Jesus, how confident can the 11 men that are standing in front of Jesus be about what Jesus is about to say? If hell could not stop Jesus, how confident can they be? If Satan cannot stop Jesus, how confident can they be? Listen, sometimes we read this text and we think this is meek and wimpy and weak Jesus. This is not meek, wimpy, weak Jesus. This is Jesus standing on the bones of the enemies of mankind. And he's now about to give the 11 a job. Listen, the context, the context is great. It's a context of victory. It's a context of power of triumph, of amazing confidence for the believers. This is not Jesus just giving a pie in the sky, wishful thinking, you know, hey, here's what I would really like. This is Jesus saying, I have just kicked the teeth in of death. And now we've got a job to do. What's so great about the Great Commission? Well, first, there's a great context. But look at how verse 18 continues on. He said to them, Jesus did, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, so great context, yes. There's also a great authority. Picture this in your mind just for a second. Picture how strange the scene is. Here's Jesus of Nazareth, standing on a mountain in Galilee without any money at all. Hands pierced, feet pierced, side pierced. There's no swords. He doesn't have any horses. He doesn't have any shields or battering rams or an empire. And he's declaring to them a conquering authority. I have total authority. Imagine that. You run into somebody, you got nothing, and yet somehow you're claiming total authority. What an image, right? It's not a general in battle here. He's not decked out in armor, anything like that. But he's still calling forth a victory. 
There's no weapon of any kind, right? Wrong. There is a weapon that's standing there. The most glorious conqueror of all. Jesus Christ himself is standing there, indomitable, unstoppable power. He is the sword that brings life and the sword that brings judgment. He is the conqueror. He conquers some to life and some to death. And in the end, guaranteed, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is total authority, Jesus declares. Now, what is the shape of this authority? Now, here I want to back away from Matthew 28. I want to wind the clock back 500 years. I want to take you to the prophet Daniel. Daniel ministered in the Babylonian and the Persian times. And Daniel, 500 years before this moment right here, predicts this moment right here. In Daniel chapter 7, he says this, and it'll be on the screen for you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And watch this. Check the similarity of the language. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That's 500 years predicting this event in Matthew 28. But what I want you to notice is this, one key thing. Who gives the authority to Jesus? It's God the Father. God the Father gives God the Son the authority. In other words, listen, church, Satan never has the authority to give to Jesus. Sometimes we give Satan more credit than he actually deserves. There's never been a single moment, not a single moment, not a single second of a single moment when Jesus has not been completely in charge. The authority handed to him by the Father. And what does the authority look like? He's got a dominion. Uh, he's, he's got a dominion that never ends. What he gets here, he keeps and he keeps forever. And every nation and every, every tribe and, and every, every kingdom on earth is going to serve him. And so here's Jesus, not armed with anything except himself, standing on this mountainside, declaring total authority. Authority in heaven, over the angels, over the four living creatures, over the judgment of mankind at the end of time. He's got authority in heaven. He's got authority on earth. He's got authority over kings. He's got authority over presidents and, and governors and, and, and mayors. He's got authority over doctors and workers and pastors and families and churches and schools. And he's got authority over hardened hearts and global economies. He's got authority over building plans and capital campaigns and land issues. He's got authority over sicknesses and disease and time and nature and sun, the moon. Satan and demons and death itself. He's got authority over absolutely everything. Right now, right now, church, everybody and everything answers to Jesus Christ. So let's ask the question, shall we? Because I asked the question of myself and felt the conviction. So if I feel conviction, y'all got to come with me and feel conviction, okay? I asked the question, what is the thing that God doesn't have authority over your life? So you think, Craig. And this week, for me, cars. Ugh. You know where I come from? Winter kills cars. Where you guys live, summer kills cars. Right? So here I am. I've been transited all the way to Texas, seeing miracle after miracle after miracle and getting us here. Not only added to that, the miracle of life in Christ Jesus and the miracles of seeing him work in and through me in my weaknesses and in my family in their weaknesses. I've seen all of this and then I am a student of God's word. I am literally a student of God's word. 
So why am I back over here going, but God is not in control of the car situation. He's got dominion over everything. Not the cars. What's, your, what's yours? You got it, right? He's got dominion. He's got rulership. He's got total authority over everything. Except the sickness. Except the family issue. Except the crisis at work. The difficulty at home. He's got authority over everything except that. Listen, church, in truth, what God's word leads us all to is that Jesus Christ has authority over everything. Not a single random molecule in all of eternity. This history, this life is planned in all of its ups and all of its heart-wrenching pains. Far worse than car repairs. He has total authority. Now listen, there's an application for us right now as we consider our lives and what am I not surrendering to him and what am I not recognizing that he has authority over. But there's also immediate application in the text. Jesus comes and he says, okay, here's the setting. The setting is I have just performed a miracle. I have just raised myself from the dead. Secondly, I am just telling you that I have total authority over everything. Now here's the application. The application is in verses 19 and 20. Look at them with me. Now, he says, go therefore. That's why the therefore is there. It points us to these two things before. Total authority, total victory. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Let's pause there. Okay, so what's so great about the Great Commission? What's so great about it? Well, there's a great context. There's also a great authority. But here's the third thing. There's a great purpose. There's a great purpose. We, church, have a purpose that we are called to fulfill. Okay, now looking back, if we could put that verse back up behind me, what is Matthew 28 actually commanding? What are those two verses actually commanding? If you could look in those verses and say, okay, that's a command, direct command from Jesus, what is it? And maybe you would look and see, maybe there's four. I see the going, I see the making disciples, I see the baptizing, I see the teaching. Now what any good uh, study Bible will show you, or even a Bible commentary, and perhaps you've heard this before, is if you peeled back the layer of the English and read the original language there, you would see that there's actually only one command in those verses. And the one command is this, make disciples. That's what Jesus says. In light of my victory over sin and death and the grave, in light of my total authority, you are now to go and to make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? I took a stab at a definition. It's a little bit long. It's a little bit wordy. But I'm a little bit long and I'm a little bit wordy. So here it is, the definition. A disciple of Jesus is somebody who is following Jesus, who's being changed by Jesus, and has grown in the knowledge, obedience, and worship of Jesus. I'm following Jesus Christ. He is changing me by his Holy Spirit. And I am growing in obedience and knowledge and love and worship of Jesus. Okay, based on the authority of the risen Lord, firm on the foundation that he reigns over everything, we are called to make disciples. That's the job. That's the purpose. Notice that it's not just to evangelize. It's not just to hand out tracts. It's not just to tell people about Jesus. It's not just that. And it's not, it's not to save people. We're not called to save people. That's a job that only God can do. Salvation belongs to the Lord. No, we're called to make disciples. That's the purpose. 
So let's talk here for a second about how do you make disciples. Well, the answer to how you make disciples is those three other words that look like commands. We go and make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. So let's quickly unpack those. We, we go, first of all, we make disciples by going. We make disciples by going. You've got to go. What do I mean by going? I mean you've got to act. You've got to move off of this. And this, this in, includes some kind of physical movement, you know. It, moves, it, it requires you from going from place A to place B. You must move from where you are, from church, to go find people who aren't from church. And praise God that this church, Bannockburn Church, has a long and amazing history of God's grace and glory as believers like us stepped out of our church, reached friends in their neighborhood, and brought them to church. They got up, they went. You move outside your circles to circles where people who don't know Jesus are. Now listen, there's lots of ways to do that, but we live in an era where there's a unique way to do that, and we can do that through uh, online. We can interact and we can support the Great Commission through online. Uh, one of the things I want to highlight for us this morning is, yes, there's many ways that we can go, but I want to highlight something that just for those of us who are sitting here saying, well, how can I go? I got such a weird job. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. I'm not, I'm not a worship leader. How do I go? I have a unique set of skills, but listen, those unique set of skills could be used locally and globally. So one of the things I want to highlight for us this morning in almost a little bit of a commercial, uh, but in a commercial for God, is, is what God has been doing in and through the members of our church and, and supported by our missions team as we've been seeing for the past four years the development of a new ministry. It's actually birthed out of Bannockburn, which is super exciting. The ministry is called Switchboard. I'll put up a slide here for you with a QR code. You can check it out. Again, it kicked off a couple of years ago. Uh, literally, it's about to fully launch in four weeks. You'll probably hear more about it in the, in the four weeks. Uh, work has been already done through Switchboard in connecting people and believers in places like Asia and Europe and Africa and South America, connecting them in this pilot phase. There's literally more than 50 organizations, 50 missions organizations that you would know that are connecting with Switchboard. This is, again, a ministry that has been birthed out of the membership here at Bannockburn. Here's how it works, okay? You take people who have everyday skills, people who have everyday skills that think, that's not a mission skill, and we convince you otherwise, okay? You sign up and you say, hey, here's my skills. I've got a unique set of skill sets. You know, I'm good with design. Uh, I'm good with budgeting, uh, I'm good with logistics, I'm good with business, uh, I'm, 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 I'm good with like, you know, that online Canva program, I'm really good with that. Uh, I, I'm also, uh, I've also had some educational experience, and you know what, I've also raised kids with special needs, and, and I have experience in that. Just a, a wide variety of options like that. And then what happens is, you sign up, and then Switchboard connects you like a switchboard, and how grateful am I that I understand what a switchboard is, right? Some of us younger folks don't understand what a switchboard is. The switchboard gets connected from the person in North America or wherever to a missions organization in need. So think about this. Imagine, imagine you are able to serve a church in Liberia. You are able to serve a missionary in Chile. You're able to serve in, in Thailand for a, a, a person who's working in businesses' missions. And you're doing that all without leaving your home. Okay, again, it's called Switchboard. Uh, it's one of these unique skills. If you've got one of these unique skills, you want to find out how you can help, you can click the QR code also as well. Just after the service, we've got Nathan and Annie. They're going to be at a table. They'll give you a flyer if you're interested in it, okay? Just want to encourage this in our church. It's, it's a physical movement, and that's one of the ways you could do it. One of the ways that's creative and God's using in the days ahead. All right, it's a physical movement. 
uh, to reach the loss with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before I leave this, so think about this for a second. You're a mechanic. You describe yourself as a mechanic, but you never touch a car. You describe yourself as a gymnast, but you never go to a gym. You describe yourself, listen, as a panda researcher, but you ain't never touched a panda and you don't even know what one looks like. Okay? Listen, as a church, we are called to make disciples. So we got to go out where people aren't, who don't know Jesus. We go where people are who aren't saved. It requires a physical movement, but it also requires a mental movement. It requires a shift that some of us have in our heads, myself included, where we think, if I just act a certain way for years and years and years, and if I just behave this way at work, and if I just behave this way in my family setting, and if I just act this way, then somewhere along the line, maybe next month, maybe next year, next decade, someone will say, hey, what makes you so different? And I'll say, Jesus. No, we got to move away from that. we got to be more bold. we got to open our mouth we got to share Christ. Hey, you know what I have? I found a hope in Jesus Christ, and you need to know him too. Yes, we got to use tact. Yes, we got to do it in love. We can't slam people over the head with Jesus, but we got to speak up. But listen, there's, there's more to disciple-making than just simply going and sharing Jesus. A disciple not only goes, but a disciple also baptizes. Jesus said that the disciple is also baptized into the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's significant to know that something has happened between us going and then baptizing. Something's happened in between that, and namely that something is that somebody got saved. But God doesn't give us that as the job description, right? Because that's not our job. Our job is not to save people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Our job is to share with them about Jesus Christ. And now that they've heard that message, then they come to Christ in faith, and then they step forward, and then we baptize them. Now, I know that we heard a message on baptism a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to belabor that, but I am going to ask, again, maybe you missed it. Uh, I'm going to detail baptism by asking three questions. First, what is baptism? Baptism is an outward act of obedience to the Lord Jesus where you, who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, get immersed in water. You get immersed in water. You make a very public declaration. Just as I am being baptized, so Jesus Christ is associated with me in his death and burial and now resurrection and newness of life. Baptism does not save you. It's one of the things, it's one of the first things you do as a new believer in Jesus Christ. You're going public with your faith. Who gets baptized? Well, those are people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You're saying, it's not about my work. It's not about my effort. I can never work my way into heaven. I am surrendering. I am giving my life to Jesus Christ who has given his life for me. I trust not in my righteous works, whatever they are. I trust in the righteous work of Jesus Christ. I place all of my faith in Jesus Christ. That's the person who gets baptized. Listen, as you look at the New Testament, there's no such thing as an unbaptized believer in Jesus. They just got baptized. They went public right away. Me too. I'm saved too. Church family, I'm saved too. So then maybe the next question is, when do I get baptized? Well, baptism, understand this, is meant to be one of the earliest steps of obedience in Christ. Baptism should not, you shouldn't say, okay, you know what, I got to wait until I get everything in a row to be baptized. I got to wait until those sins are all dealt with. Because if you're doing that, and if you're saying that, then you're going to be waiting a long time. No one gets perfection in this life. Baptism is one of the first steps of obedience that you're going to take. So maybe you came not for a message on the Great Commission. Maybe you came for a message about baptism once again. And you're like, ah, there it is again. And conviction rises, right? And you say, oh, you know what, you know what, I'll just wait till next time. 
But you said that last time. Maybe, just maybe, as we celebrate what God has done in our church in the month of August, you're going to be lining up and you're going to be stepping in and saying, you know what, I need to be baptized. I, re- I recognize that obedience delayed is actually disobedience, and I need to do it. Well, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and you know how to do that, okay? Reach out to us. All right, a disciple is sent, a disciple is baptized. Here's the third one. A disciple ta- is taught and teaches. A disciple teaches. Here's the last statement probably the most loaded by far. Look at what it says. Jesus says at the beginning of verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How do you make a disciple? You make them by going. You make them by baptizing. You make them by teaching everything that Jesus Christ has taught and commanded. How do we do this? Well, now we're in the long game. This isn't just the fast twitch muscles of going and baptizing. This is the long obedience This is the steady obedience in a straight direction. This is discipleship. This is the training up of men and women to grow in the knowledge of and the obedience to and the worship of Jesus Christ. This takes time. This doesn't happen from day one, not even from the day of baptism. Listen, the world is littered with men and women who have heard the gospel, who believe the gospel, and then fell away from the gospel. They heard the word, they received it with joy. This is so awesome, and yet the roots didn't take hold. And they endured for a little while, and then the tribulation comes in, and then the persecution rises up on account of the word of God, and then immediately they fall away. This world is filled with men and women who heard the word, and yes, yes, this is awesome, but then the cares of the world, and then the deceitfulnesses of riches come in, and then all of a sudden now I'm not really there. This world is filled with people who have heard, who have believed, and then have left the gospel. But Jesus is calling us to make disciples. He's calling us to play the long game teach the word of God. And how do I apply this in my life? How do I engage in this particular part of the Great Commission? You got to teach Jesus. And oh my word, church, literally, this is not planned, but this is like the 10th time I have stood in front of you with God's word, and I have shown you how much God's word talks about the importance of God's word. You got to have God's word in your life. You got to have it. Here's the truth. A person cannot grow in Jesus Christ. You cannot grow without a consistent diet in the Word of God. It's just impossible. You don't grow a tomato without water, do you? You don't grow a believer in Jesus without the water of the Word of God. And listen, listen, you want to disciple people? You can't lead people where you yourself haven't been. That's not possible. If you want to be obedient to God's great commission, you got to have something to teach. you got to anchor your life in the truth of God's Word. And as God's Word is revealed to you, then you turn around and tell them about God's Word. You you know, don't tell me your little stories and your little wisdoms. And and don't tell me about all your experiences in life. I love that stuff. But listen, don't do that unless you're going to tell me about Jesus first. We want to hear about Jesus. The trouble is, is that we think we're discipling people, but we're actually, we are, but we're discipling them towards us. And listen. On the day that I die, I would love if it was said of me. You know that guy, Craig? He had no followers. Not a single one. But by the infinite grace of God, he pointed many to the infinite glory and worth of Jesus Christ. You want that too, don't you? So teach them Jesus. Don't tell them about you. Tell them about Jesus. You can tell them about what Jesus has done in your life, but it all goes back to Jesus. So we make disciples. We baptize and we teach them about Jesus. That's the great purpose. We go. But this is a huge job description, right? 
This is mammoth. This is not like, hey, can you go to the store and get me a gallon of milk? This is not that at all. This is huge. This has consequences. This takes grit. This takes time. This takes energy. This, this is tough. This is going to face opposition in our lives. How can we possibly do this? Well, the end of verse 20 is something that we need to see. It's the last great for us as we consider the Great Commission. I want you to see something terrific in it. Verse 20 says this at the end, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you know the Great Commission has actually two commandments? It has the make disciples commandment, and the last word is in that word behold, which means see. Don't forget. Remember. I want you to make disciples, but I don't want you to ever, ever, ever forget that I'm always going to be with you. What's so great about the Great Commission? Well, there's a great promise at the end. We've seen the great context. We've seen the great authority. We've even seen the great purpose. Now we need the courage to make it happen. And it comes to us directly from the presence of Christ. How sweet is this? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's the truth for us now believer in Jesus Christ, that Christ is abiding with us. He's upholding us now. It builds courage in our hearts, right? And when you understand that the presence of the Lord is going with you wherever you go, in those assignments that are tough, in those conversations that's going to be hard, as you share the gospel with friends and family who may seem opposed to it, who may be antagonistic to it, Jesus Christ is with you always. Is that a sweet truth for you today? Soak in that truth for a second and recognize that the presence of Jesus goes with you always. He's true to his promises. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Know that Jesus is not calling strategies from the sideline. He's right there in the battle with you. Persistent, actively involved, changing hearts even as we go. That brings courage. The recognition that I am never alone. I never have to go it alone. He's never going to abandon me. I'm never going to be left to myself. Jesus Christ is with me always to the end of the age. Jesus Christ, the one who rose from the grave. Jesus Christ, the one with total and complete authority, is with me always to the end of the age. Listen, what's so great about the Great Commission? Great context, great purpose, and now so great, so great, Jesus comes with me. That, by the way, I don't know if you ever noticed this, that, by the way, is why the church calls this the great co-mission, not the great mission. The great mission means you go it alone, right? But the great co-mission means he comes with you. All right, so what's next, church? What's next? We have seen it. We have understood it. We've seen how great it is. Look at the context of the message. It is a miracle. Look at the authority. It's complete and total. Look at the mission that he's called us out to. He, the purpose that he's called us out to is so great and so vast. And this world so needs the hope and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are lost and there are dying souls. We need Jesus Christ. So, church, what's left for us now is to step in. And step in and we pray obey. But maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're just in the place right now of asking God, I want to want that. And that's a great place to start too. Let's pray. So Lord, beginning with that, the hearts here today who are saying, I want that. I want to want that. Life is so short. 
times are so dangerous. Lives are entering into an eternity apart from you. And what's worse is they're entering into an eternity apart from you without even knowing or having heard about you. God, I pray for a healthy conviction, not a condemnation, Lord. No, we are forgiven everything always. But a conviction that settles upon us by your spirit. God, that we would believe, we would believe that there are perishing souls outside these doors. And that we would also believe that we have the hope in Jesus Christ. We have the message of life that they need. So Lord, make this church bold. Make it bold. Please, Lord, make it bold. Empowered by your spirit, Lord, make it fruitful. We pray that life after life after life would change, be glorifying you as they repent and bow the knee, Lord. Please, God, for your gospel to have power as you would give it. I pray for conviction in hearts, Lord, in a good way. We want to want this more. Let this church glorify you as we reach the lost and the dying of this world. It's the only hope, Lord. You, Lord Jesus, are the only hope. We have the words of life. What are we going to do? Please help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.